Friends, this morning we uh, come to our sermon passage. We're continuing on in the Ten Commandments. And this morning we are on the Sixth Commandment. You shall not kill. Um, one of my favorite poets is, a, is, he's been dead for 400 years, um, was a guy named John Donne. He was a pastor actually in London in the early 17th century, so early 1600s. And he wrote a number of poems that have been passed down over the years. Uh, uh, Be Not Proud, O Death. You hear that one sometimes at Easter. And the most famous one probably, and my favorite, is called No Man is an Island. And this may be one you've heard before or you've heard that term. No Man is an Island. He wrote this poem at a time when he was really sick, like possibly on his deathbed sick. And he was stuck at home. And he lived in London at the time. And at the time, obviously, they didn't have social media. They didn't really even have newspapers like we think of them. So they didn't have, like, obituary sections. And the way a community would be, uh, uh, they would let people know that someone had died was the church bell would toll. A lot like that, uh, you know, train that's about to go by. (laughs) But the way it would happen is... Uh, and it didn't just ring one time. It just wasn't like, doom. What would happen is if it was a man who died, it would ring nine times. If it was a woman who died, it would ring six. And then after it rung either those nine times or those six times, it would ring one time for every year that person who had just died had lived. And so you would be sitting there middle of the day, or John Dunn, he's in the middle of his sickness laying on his bed, thinking about life and death, and he'd hear it ring... I'll wait for the train to pass by here. That's great. Love it. Trains are important. All right. So the train whistle would do it, you know, nine times for a man. No, church bell. Um, and it, but by the time it got done ringing, you would generally have an idea of who it might be. Because you didn't live in a big place. You kind of knew everybody. So you'd hear it, and it was, okay, it rang 52 times after it was a woman. But you didn't always know. And so what you would do is, is if you heard it, you would, he would send somebody out or you would go to the church and find out, like, who passed? Who passed away? And so he's, he's stuck in bed for all this time and he's hearing this bell day after day. And he's sick, maybe on his deathbed, and kind of every time he hears the bell, it shakes him. And that's when he wrote this poem. I'm going to read part of it now. No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind. And therefore, uh, never sin to know for whom the bell tolls. It It tolls for thee. What he's saying, that idea that any man's death diminishes me because I'm involved in mankind is part of what the heart of the Sixth Commandment is. We are connected and are meant to be connected to one another. Our lives are intimately involved with one another. And with that said, we come to our sermon passage. You have it in your bulletin. Exodus 20. 1 and 2 and verses 13. This is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall not kill. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your guidance to us. I thank you for the scriptures, which are not just a manual on how to live. They reveal who you are. 
and what you're up to. And thus they reveal to us who we are in you. So I pray as we search into the treasures of your word this morning that you would teach us by your spirit that we would know you all the more. In Jesus' name, amen. The Ten Commandments, as I've said, the last uh, we've been in the Ten Commandments the last two months, do not begin with God giving a list of things to do. It's the reason why every week I'm printing the first and second verse of Exodus 20. Because the Ten Commandments begin with God telling who He is and what He's done. You know, uh, and I think this is illustrated as where the, the Ten Commandments are. You may have noticed we're in Exodus chapter 20. It means there's 19 chapters of history of God working for His people's redemption before you even get to Him giving them this list of, of things. It's illustrated in, in the fact that the Israelites were in slavery. God sent Moses, and when Moses arrives uh, in Egypt where they're enslaved, he doesn't show up with this list of things to do. Here, you do these things, and then I'll free you. No, he dramatically and powerfully frees his people, and only after he frees them, without any contribution from them whatsoever, does he teach them how to live as freed people. That principle there, grace goes first. It's one that just doesn't run in Exodus. It's, it's kind of the crux of the whole Bible. Grace goes first. We are always responding to grace. We are never making God love us. We are never earning anything before him that then he gives us um, you know, good things or his grace as a paycheck. Grace goes first always. And the first four commandments, they fix our eyes firmly on God. The first four commandments have to do with our relationship with God. And so it speaks about having no other gods, not making images of Him, not taking His name in vain, honoring the Sabbath day. And in all those things we've talked through in these past few weeks, we find that our value is fixed by God. We find that He has brought us into life-giving relationship with Him, not just transactional like I was talking about a few minutes ago, but we are meant to find our nourishment in his love for us. That to be our motivation, the gas in our tank, is that we are loved by the God of the universe. And we are given his name to represent him in this world. Adopted into his family. And so that means what we do with our lives matter. And it also means we can rest. Not as something we earn. We rest because he gives us rest as a gift. We don't have to hustle for our worthiness. Now the last six commandments... It turns our eye, or it broadens our vision, I should say, to not just include our relationship with God, but it pulls into view our relationship with other people. If grace goes first always, and the things we've talked about in those first four commandments are true, what does that mean for our relationships with other people? That's what the last six commandments are. An unpacking. If grace goes first always, what does that mean for our relationships with other people? Last week we were in the fifth commandment. We were talking about honoring your father and your mother. And usually we hear that commandment as like, kids, listen to your mom. Kids, listen to your dad. And maybe it includes that too. That's an important thing. Kids don't like, say, Tim, you know, the pastor told you to like rebel against your parents. That's not what the commandment means. But it's, a lot, it's about a lot more than that. The fifth commandment is how we uh, process and deal with our past and the histories that make us us. And God leads us in not you know, pretending our histories 
and our families and all those things don't matter, he invites us to see them as weighty but not ultimate. And this morning, we're looking at the sixth commandment. And what God does here is he is guiding us on how to interact with others in the present, in the here and now. And we see this crucial thing, and this is our principle, this is our first section, who we are in the gospel. We are those who have been given life by God entirely by grace. So we've been given life by God entirely by grace, and so we are to be about the life of others. That's that principle here. We have been given life by God entirely by grace, and so we are to be about the lives, the good of other people above everything else. Like that is our number one priority as we live our lives, is to be about the good of others. To be, this is the guiding principle in the here and now. It's about thriving and human flourishing. Now I've said we've been given life by God, and I mean that in the sense that He is our Creator and and we are His creatures. We didn't make ourselves. We didn't give ourselves life breath in our lungs. We didn't give ourselves the, the organs and all the pieces of our body that make us alive. That's entirely a gift. And God made humanity good. And He made us for good. In body and soul. Now the reality of sin marred this. It goes back to our first parents, Adam and Eve. They rejected the guidance of God. And sin entered into the world and it was like a nuclear explosion that poisons everything. But that does not change that in our bones we are made for life. It's why we hate death so much. It's why we run from it. It's why we rage against it. Death is not the way it's supposed to be. Not at all. It's why we despise it so much. But the good news isn't just that God gave us life. And then we sin and kind of, you know, humanity spit in his face and turn around. The good news is this, that we've been given life. And even though sin has marred this, bringing physical and spiritual death to us, that God again brings us life by redeeming us in Jesus. He bears the punishment that sin deserves so that God's purposes, he removes everything that stands in the way between us and him. You know, I described it uh, a couple of months ago as... Uh, sin is like somebody taking the water hose and pinching it off. And, you know, no more water is coming. We've, we've been made for vital life-giving re- uh, relationship with God to draw on who He is. The reality is sin squinches the hose. And so we can't access that water that we need. And what Jesus does in His work is He unclenches that hose, so now we have access again to that fountain of life that we were designed to draw upon. That's what God does in Jesus. So He removes our sin by forgiving us. He declares us righteous in His sight. He awakens us to spiritual life, which is a miracle that happens when the eyes of our hearts are opened and we receive all that He has for us in Jesus. Forgiveness, the promise of transformation, Hope, And the promise of Scripture is that this work of redemption, this work of giving us life again in the face of death, God will not stop this redeeming work until all things are made new. When we are renewed, not just in our spirit, not just in soul, but in body as well. 
That's why Scripture points us always to this future hope that God will make all things new. So this is what I mean when I say that we've been given life. All of this is grace. It was grace in the first place. It was abundant grace when He redeems us, and it will remain grace. And this is the starting point of how we uh, of our how we live in relationship with other people. If God's given us life entirely by grace, then we are to be about life for ourselves and for other people. Human life matters. It matters so much to God that He moved heaven and earth to make sure that humanity didn't end in futility, that our lives didn't end in just final judgment. He moved to find us in grace to be about our life and our thriving. And so we copy Him by His grace in being about that as well. And this is the starting point of how we live our life in relationship with others. Now, other things in life matter. The rest of the Ten Commandments touch on them. But they matter insofar as how they serve human life. Here's what I mean. Marriages matter. Sexuality matters. It's what the next commandment talks about. And we'll be there next week. But it doesn't matter by itself. Property matters. You shall not steal. That matters. Our neighbor's good name matters. And so we don't bear false witness. That'll be the ninth commandment. Us having uh, the right attitude toward our neighbor, not coveting their possessions matters. That's the tenth commandment. But the reason why they matter is because all those things are designed to serve human life and flourishing. They don't matter by themselves. We don't commit adultery because marriages and sexuality and desires are made to serve human life. We don't steal because property exists for human flourishing. We protect our neighbor's good name and we train ourselves not to look at their life and sinfully desire their story because it serves human life. Now I'll unpack that you know, over the next four weeks a little bit more in detail. But what, the point I'm making is that there's a banner above the list of how we should live the rest of our life. It's the thing that matters more than all the rest of it. It more, matters more than property. It matters more than sexual fulfillment. It matters more than anything else. It is human life. The lives of other people. And your life too. You are more than your possessions. You're more than your sexual history. You're more than the lies you've told or the lies that have been told about you. That's what I'm saying. Now we'll unpack that a little bit more as we go. But who are we in the gospel? We are those who have been given life by grace, entirely by grace. And so we are to be about life. This is a profoundly pro-life way of life. And I'm not talking about politics here. Or I should say, I'm not talking about Republican Party politics or Democratic Party politics. When I say pro-life here, I want, to take that, I want to take that term back. Because what I'm presenting before us and what Scripture presents before us is a bigger vision of human life. Not just the topic of abortion, but it is being about human life and flourishing from womb to tomb. From the beginning of life to the end of it. Pro-life the whole life long. I'm talking about a pro-life outlook that maybe uncomfortably opens ourselves to others. A way of life that uh, sees other people as people to love and not projects to fix or things to use to get what we want. 
A way of life that is passionate about other people's good, not apathetic. A way of life that includes how decisions impact other people as a crucial part of the decision-making process. A way of life that's invested, sacrificially invested, head, heart, and hands in the good of others and in our own good. But we don't pursue this way of life because we think it's the smartest or the best. We don't draw on our own strength or our own good intentions to make it happen. We draw on the unending love of God for us, knowing that even when our good intentions run out, His do not. We love because He's first loved us. And we draw on His love as the fountain of our nourishment. So that's the background before we go any further. Here in the sixth commandment, who are we? We are those who are about life because we have been given life entirely by grace. That leads me to my second section here. How do we live as God's freed people? Now, the sixth commandment can seem like the easiest one, right? You shall not kill, and you're like, got it. I'm not going to go out and murder anybody today. Sixth commandment, done. Right? Like, not too many of us are in danger of going out and, and taking somebody out this afternoon. But if we dig a little bit deeper, this commandment is about a whole lot more than that. In fact, you can see it. We're reading in English, but the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. And that word that's translated kill here, or maybe your translation says murder, it's actually a word that has a very broad meaning. So when God says you shall not kill here, that word later on in Scripture is used to describe homicide. So yes, murders. It's also used to describe things like manslaughter, when you unintentionally cause the death of another person. It's even used to describe, and this is a bit confusing, honestly, it also includes when someone takes another's life in a justified way, like in war, or even uh, legal executions of somebody who has warranted the death penalty. Penalty. That same word, you shall not kill, is used for murder, manslaughter, taking life in war, and even legal executions. Now, I admit that's initially a little bit confusing because God says do not kill. And then when he's giving Israel their instructions on how to build their nation and their laws, he then allows times when they can kill. But what I think is happening here is, well, number one, Scripture does not treat those as equally bad. It doesn't. But I think what's happening here is God is giving us an expansive picture. That the baseline of his people is to do that which promotes life. That killing of any, killing of any type is never to be first option. Never first option. And the reason I think uh, that is because as Scripture keeps going, you can find this in Numbers 35 and in all these different places where um, it's unpacked a little bit more. It, God gives uh, instructions on war. He realizes His people are in a um, broken world and there's going to be violence visited against them. But when He gives them instructions on how to wage war as a people, He tells them always seek um, peace terms. Go out of your way to seek peace terms with your enemy before you start battle. He instructs them to do that. He recognizes the reality that war happens in a world like ours. But their baseline is to be about that which preserves human life. 
He even instructs them uh, later on when they're getting ready. Uh, they're an army. And he's, you know, if you know anything about military stuff, uh, one of the things, uh, the armies, they can't really do it now, but you would uh, see, besiege a city. So surround the city. People couldn't get out. No uh, food or water can get in. And you just kind of wait people out. But God even gives instructions to his, uh, the Israelite army that when they see, besiege a city, they shouldn't destroy the surrounding forests and the farmland. His point is like, besieging might have a temporary function in the reality of the darkness of war, but don't destroy the land because people are going to live after this. It's about life. Or even uh, when, when he unpacks like uh, the Israelite nation doing the death penalty, their justice system. Someone has earned the death penalty. There are so many restrictions and, and uh, hurdles to get over to get to the point to, vi- to make that happen that it makes it almost impossible to carry out. It's not God winking at the reality of, of crime, but it is this baseline. As God's freed people, we are about life. We are about life, and, and death and killing should never, ever be first option. Now, we don't live in ancient Israel. And our job is not to try and get the Old Testament laws instituted in our country. They served that particular nation for a particular amount of time. But they do guide us in 2023 on how to be people who are about the lives of others. To hear you shall not kill as a picture of what God's kingdom is to be and what matters there. To hear you shall not kill and not just think of it as like, a a guideline to keep us from doing the worst thing, but it sets a trajectory. It's like a springboard that we are to be about life because the commandments, a number of them are are framed negatively. You shall not kill. You shall not steal. You shall not commit adultery. But when it does that, it's not just telling us not to do these things. There's almost a sense that it's telling us the reverse. Whatever it uh, denies us to do, it commends us to do the opposite. It commends us to do the opposite. What God's doing is setting a trajectory for our imaginations. gives us a starting point, a foundation that he will build out um, throughout Scripture, showing us how to live. The theologian John Calvin, he he, uh, spoke about this. He said this, In this commandment, you shall not kill, men's common sense will only see that we must abstain from wrongdoing doing wrong to anyone or desiring to do wrong. Besides this, it contains, I say, the requirement that we give our neighbor's life all the help we can. God forbids us to hurt them and harm a brother unjustly because he wills that our brother's life be dear and precious to us. This is how we live out the reality that we are those who have been given life and are to be about life, our neighbor's life, becomes dear and precious to us. More dear and precious to us than our stuff. More dear and precious to us than our reputations. We love our neighbors as ourselves to say it as Jesus did. We have an illustration of that in our call to worship this morning. It was a little long this morning, but that was the, uh, the famous parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus gave during teaching on his time on earth. And you remember, Jesus was asked by someone, an expert in the law, it says, um, what's the, how do I inherit eternal life? 
He was asking, what's the pathway of eternal life? Not the way to earn it, but the posture of receiving it. How do I walk in steps that will lead further and further into life? And so Jesus tells this story. A man is robbed, and he is beaten, and he's left for dead. And then a priest walks by, a pastor, in a sense, walks by, and a Levite walks by, which was the tribe that in Israel that was uh, in charge of the temple. They took care of the temple. So these were like kind of the most religious people that Jesus could draw into the illustration here, into the story. They see this man distressed, beaten, naked, left half dead, and he says they crossed on the other side. They crossed the road. Now I want you to put stop for a second because we're so used to hearing this parable if you've heard it before, and that's, those are the bad guys. Priest and Levite crossing the other side, boo, right? But from their perspective, they didn't cause it to happen. They didn't beat the guy up, right? They did, they did not cause this man's misfortune. They don't know him. He's not family. So what responsibility do they have? They're not the ones that robbed and beat him. But, and, and so what I'm saying, if they just took the sixth commandment as you shall not kill, they did it, right? But did they follow the heart and the spirit of the sixth commandment? No. Were they good neighbors to this man? No. His life was not precious to them. His life was not dear to them. His trouble was something that did not concern them. The pathway of life that God opens in front of us to walk in is a pathway of love for others. Ones that opens our eyes to see that one of the great dangers to the life and the good of my neighbor is me. That's why it's phrased, you shall not kill. I looked up this week uh, North Carolina law statutes on murder. So I hope nothing happens and, you know, folks got to look at my search history. I'm not planning anything, but I was looking it up just to see, like, how is it phrased? Because it hit me, like, right here, the Ten Commandments are not phrased like laws. That's not a law. And on the law books, it's all very clinical and technical, like, it describes what a murder is. But it doesn't say you. It's not personally addressed. It doesn't say you or me. It just kind of spells out, a murder happens when da-da-da-da-da-da. A person does this thing. But the Ten Commandments, God says, you shall not kill. The onus is on us. The responsibility is on us. And him doing that, he's not trying to make us feel bad, but one of the greatest dangers to the life and good of our neighbor is me. That I would not you know, necessarily kill them. That I w- Maybe not that I would be the robbers in the story of the Good Samaritan, But I have a great danger at my heart that I would be the priest or the Levite and see the trouble of other people that I didn't cause, to see people who are not family I don't have obligations to and to pass on the other side of the road because I've got other stuff to get to. This commandment teaches us to ask this question, how is my life contributing to the good of my neighbor? Or how is my life harming, perhaps, the good of my neighbor. To start with the commandments by looking in the mirror. 
Actually, no, let me rephrase that. The discussion begins by being a mirror, turning to God to see his love and reflecting his love, which inevitably means reflecting that love to other people. You know, people throughout history had taken this very narrow idea of what the commandment is. You shall not kill. Like I said, this seems like the easy one. Like, I'm good. I'm not going to murder anybody. I'm, I'm, I'm clear here. But when Jesus was teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, you can read it in Matthew chapter 5, he starts talking about this. He says, you've heard it said you shall not kill, but I say to you, I say to you, anyone who is angry with their brother and sister has done this. He says that anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, which was a term in Aramaic that meant you are worthless or empty-headed, will be subject to judgment. Jesus is saying here that, the free, that he is leading us into a freedom that does not operate from a place of anger and a freedom that resists labeling other people. That's what that raka uh, term is. It's not just God saying, like, this is the really bad word to not call people. He's saying there is an intense danger in labeling other people. Labeling others is so damaging and lazy and uh, it, it, it's so destructive. We resist labeling and using words to break other people down. But a way of life that is pro-life, even to those who we may think deserve our anger, or those who we literally do think are being very foolish and empty-headed, now, you and I are in danger in general of murdering somebody, but how often do we allow selfish, unrighteous anger to color how we think about or even treat somebody? How often do we label people just to write them off? We do it all the time. We live in a political climate that does it. You write somebody off by saying, look at that liberal, or look at that conservative. Those are never good labels, right, when they come out of your mouth. We do those labeling to write somebody off. And when we label somebody, it means we don't have to deal with the complexity of the actual person that exists. We've labeled them in order to dismiss them and to write them off. But it's incredibly damaging. It is incredibly harmful. It's why we are warned against it. And it is a violation of the sixth commandment. We hand out labels because labeling something makes it easier for us to get our mind around it. And when we label people carelessly, what we wind up doing is justifying ourselves to not have to deal with them in a loving way. It's why the expert in the law asked Jesus, who's my neighbor? You notice it said he wanted to justify himself. He wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, if I'm supposed to love my neighbor, who's my neighbor? So here the call to us this morning. Know the reality of the gospel that you've been given life by God. And so we are to be about life. And allow the reality of that love to open your hearts and open your arms to others in embrace. To open your shoulders to help carry burdens as much as you can. And that leads me to my last section here. How does this freedom lead us to mission? The story that Jesus told that morning or that day, it didn't end with the priest and the Levite. There's another character in the story, the Samaritan. 
Now this man, he saw the beaten man who had been left half dead, and he took pity on him. And not just a feeling of pity. It wasn't like when we see a, you know, a, a bad news story or a commercial on TV and we feel bad for about 10 seconds and then we just kind of get back to whatever we were doing. He saw him and he took pity on him and it led to actions of healing and life. He bandaged those wounds that he did not cause. He took sacrificial care of this man and it cost him time and money and resources. That Samaritan was going somewhere else. And he had that money in his pocket for something else. The Samaritan here reorients the entire, his entire schedule, his budget, and all of his plans because he's come across someone whose life is in danger. Everything else stops because this man needs his help. And all that other stuff matters. Schedules matter, budgets matter, etc., etc. But what matters more than anything is the, 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 the life of this man. I've often heard people say something like this, and I've said it myself. It costs nothing to be kind. It costs nothing to be kind. And usually what we mean is we live in a world where we're so often going quickly, we might say a snide uh, word to somebody, we might kind of like, we're dealing with a cashier, and it's like, oh, just, you know, give me my stuff. And people say, well, it costs nothing to be kind. And usually we mean, you know, it's just as easy to not be rude or mean. But, and and that's, that's fine. That's a good thing. But the kind of kindness that we need in our world, the kind of kindness that God is leading us into and calling us to copy in Him, does cost. It does. It's not an easy switch. It does cost. The kind of kindness we lead in our world is not southern hospitality that, you know, has a kind word and will smile at somebody but never actually opens one's heart or home to them. We don't need southern hospitality, which is so often an inch deep and a mile wide. It's kind, but it is closed off. We need the kindness shown to us by Christ to come to life in our heart, we need a kindness that does not make sense to people who aren't looking at it through the lens of the gospel. You know, from a certain angle, the good Samaritan, the parable, the Samaritan's kind of foolish. He throws in a bunch of money to help this guy. He's going to get no return on it. He stops. He takes uh, everything else in the schedule, stops. The priest and the Levite, they had other things they needed to get to that were very important, I'm sure. People that were depending on them. If there was a priest, for sure. People that are depending on them. The way of life I'm talking about this morning that I think God's putting in front of us is a way of life that's going to be inconvenient. It will. It will mean paying attention to stuff we'd rather ignore because it makes us uncomfortable. It'll mean opening our ears and listening to people. It'll mean taking it on ourselves to help people carry burdens that we didn't have any hand in making happen. Now in the, in the parable, we are not told exactly why the priest and the Levite didn't stop. Now I was told this story as a kid in like Sunday school, and it was always like, you know, they thought they were too good. Or, you know, there, there would be some reason given, and they're just showing the little... Uh, 
image of the priest and Levite walking past. But in the story, we're not told why. We aren't told why. And I think that's why, because the reason is not important. The reason why they didn't stop is not important. The point that Jesus makes here is that whatever reasons they might have given themselves to justify not stopping were not good enough reasons. Whatever reasons they used to justify saying, that's not my neighbor, were not good enough reasons. Sure, it would have taken time. It would have taken money. It would have been incredibly inconvenient. It would have taken resources. But friends, one of the reasons, the main reasons that we are given our time and our money and our resources is to put them to work for other people. Because people are the point. People are the point. People matter. As people who have been given life entirely by grace, we become about the life of other people. And we stop wondering if they deserve it. After all, God didn't ask those questions about me. He didn't ask those questions about you either. I have nothing good in my life that is not entirely a gift. All grace. I didn't earn life. I didn't earn breath in my lungs. I certainly didn't earn anything related to salvation. It's all grace. And if it's all grace for me, who am I to start treating people that they're on, like they're only worth my life and my concern if they meet my standards? If God has been so generous and kind to me, how can I withhold generosity or kindness to others? What this will mean for us, you shall not kill, as being a whole lot more than don't murder somebody. What this will mean for us is rethinking our goals and even rethinking dreams. Take something like planning for retirement, for instance. Usually when we talk about things like retirement, we're talking about how do I save enough money where I can live comfortably and maybe travel when I no longer have to work anymore. If I get to that place where I don't have to work anymore, how can I save enough money to live comfortably and travel? And those are good things. I love living comfortably. (laughs) I love travel. But what if our idea of what a retirement could be isn't just saving enough money to live comfortably and travel? But also, just as importantly, asking the question, how will I serve other people and care for them if I'm blessed to not have to earn a paycheck? What if we see retirement as a calling into being about life for other people? Maybe something like this and reflecting on how can I be about life. Maybe it means we ask questions and we... we, Reconsider what kind of house we buy if we have the opportunity to buy a house. Or we reconsider where we even live. What neighborhoods we go into to live. Where we decide to spend our money and shop. Where we decide to send our kids or educate them. Or what kind of career we guide them toward. Have you ever considered that the place you live, the home, the neighborhood, that one of the reasons you've been given a place to live is to make a place, insofar as it's in your power, that is safe and welcoming for your family, yes, and for other people. That one of the reasons you have a car is so that you can get to help people even quicker. This way of life here will mean we purposely open ourselves to others. It'll mean being transparent and humble. I talk about this a lot. It'll mean taking the religious mask 
and the uh, religious cosplay costumes off. Stop pretending. Done with it. That kills us. This way of life will also be, uh, will mean being misunderstood. Think of the life of Jesus. He had a reputation in his hometown, in his home region, and it was not a good one. Your Savior had a horrible reputation in his hometown and his home region. You know what he, they, they called him? They called him a drunk. They called him a drunk because he spent so much time with people who were drunk. They accused him of being even demon-possessed because he spent so much time with people who respectable folks didn't spend time with. His family even, we talked about it last week, his family even accused him of being out of his mind because of who he was spending time with. Jesus had a horrible reputation because he pursued people from the heart of what God is leading us into in the sixth commandment. He pursued people that society had written off because he was going to be about their life, because he cared about them. He chased after them. Jesus let prostitutes touch him, and he touched them, and not in an appropriate way, but maybe in the only appropriate human touch that these women had had for years. And he was fine with the the hit to his reputation. Let people talk. Why? Because he was about life. And he was mocked, and he was accused for it. He was misunderstood. Like I said, the type of life and the type of kindness we need to have in this world costs. It doesn't happen automatically, but it's a cost that is worth it. Because God will not fail to pour out his grace on us as we live in this pathway. And it's the only kind of life that can bring real change to our world and to our families and our neighborhoods. It's it's the only kind of life that can bring true change to us. And the cool thing is, for me, we get to join Jesus in following this pathway. And his grace will be sufficient every step of the way. So this morning, friends, you, you, you guys are already following this way of life. I know all of you well enough to know that this isn't a new concept for you. But let's go further and further into it. Let's go further and further into it. Let's ask those deep questions because I think as we live this out together, being about the life and the good of other peoples and people and throwing the idea of them earning something out of the way, I think we're going to see God do incredible transformational things in this town and in our neighborhoods and in our families and in our hearts when we take this even more seriously. So let's do that together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you that you are so committed to our lives that you chased after us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I thank you, Lord, that you have given us life entirely by grace and you are calling us into life to follow you after this. Empower us by your Holy Spirit that we will be motivated and and, and pushed on and nourished by your love for us. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.